Will you find your way to the book of Matthew, and Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read a brief account again of how Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Anybody in here want to say, I know that to be true because he has become a friend of mine. And I, am a, I have known the throes of sin. I've known the pull of sin in my life. And it wasn't after I got myself all cleaned up. It wasn't after I extricated myself from all the messes that I was in. But it was while I was in the middle of it that the Lord came to me. And he's the reason that there's been a change. It wasn't because I found the Lord. It was because he found me. Thank you very much. You know, so, so I, I, I believe that, that we're, 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 the house is full of folks who would say it's true. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Let's want to just read down through this. Follow along if you would. Verse 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, and he's in Capernaum, one of those villages right along the coast of the Sea of Galilee, Evidently, that's where he is. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Now, if you read this same story in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, you're going to find that it's a different name. It's not the name Matthew. It's the name what? Levi. Levi. So Matthew and Levi are considered, have been considered to be the same person, the same man. Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now Luke inserts in Luke chapter 5 that Matthew left everything and followed him. It happened, verse 10, that as he was reclining, as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, that's how they would eat. You know, they, they didn't have chairs. They had benches or pillows that they'd lean on. The table was low slung. And they would lean on an elbow and eat with their other hand. So that's why they would call it reclining at the table. But that's what you did when you went to somebody's house to have dinner. It wasn't a drive-by and it wasn't a drive-through. It was to be there for a while. Happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, which house? Matthew's house. That behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, I realize that this can be belaboring a point, but I feel like it's a worthy point to belabor. You pick out to you, the most despicable lifestyle, the most despicable profession, come up with your name or names, and you take those names and you insert them in the New Testament every place you find the word tax gatherer. They were considered the lowest of the low, the sorriest of the sorry. They were Jewish men who had agreed to take employment from the Roman government for the purpose of collecting Roman taxes from their countrymen. The Romans didn't care how much more than the base amount the Jewish tax gatherers or tax collectors collected so long as Rome got its money. So it was understood that the tax gatherers added a fee, added their own commission, and it could range depending on what they thought they could get. 
they had Rome backing them in the collection of the taxes. The citizenry didn't know the difference between what the tax gatherers were taking out of the till and how much was actually paid to Rome. It was just one amount. So they were thought of as liars. They were thought of as thieves. They were thought of as cheats. They were thought of as scoundrels. They were thought of as ones in whom there could be no trust placed. They were traitors. They were thought of as traitors, betraying their countrymen and their nation to serve the Romans, this occupying force. They, to say they were despised is, is on the light end of the spectrum. They were, they were hated. And it was believed by the ones who were not the tax gatherers, but the ones from whom the tax gatherers would exact the taxes, that they were the worst of the worst. It was a lifestyle, and it was a profession, and it was profitable. They lived in the lap of luxury, typically, with servants and houses and influence because of the wealth that they had amassed. And Jesus walks up to the local tax gatherer, and evidently known by James and John, Peter and Andrew, ones who were involved in the community. They were the fishermen. This was the tax gatherer. This wasn't in Jerusalem. This wasn't in Jericho. This wasn't in a, a large city. This was a country community, more than likely. The local, known, designated scoundrel, the lowest of the low, the sorriest of the sorry, who had cheated, who had lied, who had stolen. <laughs> and Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. And it happened, that I just needed to insert that a little bit. I, I, we, we read these verses sometimes and these stories sometimes and we we, we, we miss the impact at points. It happened that as Jesus was in Matthew's house and the many tax gatherers and sinners were there dining with Jesus and disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, now who are the Pharisees? They were the religious police. They were the ones who had God figured out. They could quote your scripture chapter and verse, they could tell you all the things you're doing wrong, but they were real light on confessing their own issues and their own needs. But they could tell you what you're doing wrong, and they could make sure you understood how mad God was mad at you because of how you haven't done right. They, the word Pharisee means strict. It means tight. It, it carried with it a force and a severity that just in the minds of the people who would look at them and would be judged by them as just having no compassion. A lot of rules, a lot of enforcement, a lot of judgment, a lot of condemnation, but mercy or compassion would be hard to find. When the Pharisees saw this, saw Jesus in the house of the tax gatherer with the tax gatherer's friends, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and the sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick. But you go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus walked up to the tax gatherer. Sorriest of the sorry, lowest of the low, known far and wide in that community 
for the scoundrel and the moral incompetent that he was perceived to be. Jesus walks to him and says, follow me. So who is this guy? Who is Matthew? Now, this will blow you away. You ready for this? That first book in your New Testament called the Gospel according to Matthew is written by this fellow. His name is not included like the Apostle Paul, this letter to the Colossians from Paul, your brother. It's anonymous. The authorship is anonymous. He didn't sign his name. But from the earliest testimonies of the church, it was assumed that the first gospel, and that's why it's positioned in the order that it is in, that Matthew, the former tax gatherer, was the human author of the first historical account of Jesus the Christ. So what was it about Jesus that drew Matthew the tax gatherer to him? Well, I want to back up a little bit and just try to explore that question a little bit more So who was Matthew? Who was this tax gatherer? Here are some uniquenesses about this gospel of Matthew that I believe give us a real strong indication as to where he came from. Find find that first chapter of Matthew. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the family background in an earthly sense of Jesus. Matthew is the only one to record in the account of his responding to Jesus' invitation to follow him. Matthew is the only one that records this. As he writes himself about that event, he's the only one who records, but go and Learn what this means, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It was compassion, somehow, some way, that Matthew felt from Jesus that he didn't feel from the religious system around him. I pointed you to the genealogy because it's a long listing of people who fathered sons. And usually when a genealogy is written, at least in the biblical sense, the men are the only ones named. But in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, there are five women that are listed in the genealogy. And as he lists them, you'll see that the emphasis is on the compassion of God and the redemptive power and plan of God. Now, there. For every one woman listed, there are four or five men that could have been indicated as great sinners who were redeemed and used in spite of what they had done. But when he brings the women in, it takes it to another whole level. I want to just say this. There's some folks that, that I hope are, will somewhere or another listen, end up hearing what we're saying today and talking about. And, and, and it's, it is some folks that, you know, may have just checked out on church, just checked out on religion. 
but you hadn't checked out on God. You hadn't checked out on the real Jesus. That was Matthew. I hope you'll listen. There's, there's something about organized religion that can cause there to be a stuffiness and a sterility and an arm's length toward the hurts of people and the brokenness of lives. But the real Jesus, who he really is, not sometimes his church or people who would stand in his name, but the real Jesus is drawn to broken people. It is drawn to hurting. It is drawn to ones who are trapped. It's drawn to ones who need mercy instead of wrath, who need compassion instead of just punishment. These five women, to Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac Jacob, to Jacob Judah and his brothers, and to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. It's a wife, it's a woman, it's a mother. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law into impregnating her. She had no one. She, had a, she was childless. <laughs> you, you talk about complicating the genealogy here, folks. If, if you wanted, if your purpose to a Jewish audience, which is primarily Matthew's audience, he speaks of more Jewish references, 130 Old Testament references and allusions that would be known to the Jewish people with the Jewish background and tradition. But, but if you're wanting to present the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah, and try to prove to him that this is the promised one, you, you, would, you would try to cover some of this stuff up, I would think, if it was really there. But it wasn't the law that won Matthew. It was the mercy of God that won Matthew. He wanted it to be seen all the way back before Jesus of Nazareth was ever born that the mercy of God and the redemptive plan of God and the surprising ways of God are found even in the lineage of Jesus. So there you have Tamar. Then you move down to verse 5. And to Solomon was born Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute who worked with Joshua and the spies and the armies to take Jericho. Rahab, listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar. Listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, now lest you think, ladies, I'm, 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 I'm hyper um, hammering um, the, the, the moral vicissitudes of the female gender. I, I just, even as I mention these names, understand that for every one of these women, there are four or five men listed here that could have, we could point out some specific errors and bad choices and flat out sins, as one will be seen in particular in a moment. So there was Rahab. Verse 5 continues, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a widowed Moabitess. Deuteronomy specifically forbids Moabites by having any opportunity of having any opportunity of fellowship with the assembled Jewish people. But there she is. In the genealogy, I, I'm sorry, I know some of you think, what can the man be fired up about the genealogy? The genealogy of Jesus. These are real people and real lives, real examples of the purpose of God 
to pick out and to bring in to his redemptive plan that ultimately affected you and affected me. All the way back, the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God. So there's Ruth. Then verse 6, to Jesse was born David, the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Matthew, by referencing Solomon's mother, is pointing to David's sin of adultery and David's sin of murder. Some would even say, some commentators looking into the situation would say that because David was the king and he called Uriah's wife in, Bathsheba, and he slept with her, that that was very likely, in their opinion, in effect, rape. She became pregnant. She sent word back to David. She's pregnant. He orchestrates a plan to have Uriah ultimately put to death in a battle. But at the front line of the heated part of a battle and then was given, gave instructions for the soldiers around him to withdraw. So Uriah was surrounded and killed. Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. Solomon was the product, in a sense, of an adulterous relationship. Again, complicating the genealogy. But the point is not to try to prove how bad or how good people are, but the point is to prove the mercy of God and the compassion of God that when repentance comes and brokenness happens and a turning comes, then God can use you again. God can take you farther. God can fulfill your destiny even if you made some stupid or wrong and determined and persistent choices at one time in your life. It's as if Matthew's heart was aching to know that there was forgiveness with God. Because all he would hear, perhaps, from the religious authorities around him was just, you're so bad, and you're so wrong, and there's no hope for you. So his choice was to just keep going that direction. And he made a pretty good living doing it. But evidently his heart, his heart was aching for something more, for something. Even the last woman listed, Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, became pregnant before marriage. Not that Mary needed any mercy for that, but she and Joseph and I imagine her mama needed a whole bunch of grace to be able to accept the surprising ways of God that had never happened before. The mercy of God, the redemptive plan of God, and the surprising and amazing ways of God. There was something about that that evidently Matthew felt coming from Jesus. When Jesus said, follow me, I think there may have been some other things too. Jesus would not pull any punches when it came to calling out the hypocrisy, the phoniness, the one-sidedness of the religiously elite 
in that day. And in fact, what may very well have caused Matthew to, to leave the fold at the beginning was because when he looked at the religion surrounding him, he didn't see compassion. And he didn't see honesty. He didn't see hope. He didn't see humility. But when he saw Jesus, he felt the compassion. He felt the humility. He felt the honesty. In effect, Jesus ended up, perhaps from Matthew's perspective, Jesus ended up agreeing with Matthew about the Pharisees. You know, there, there may be some folks that are just out there and maybe listening a little bit this morning and tuning in from some far point of the compass, maybe religiously or from an organized Christian church perspective. I just want to say to you, some of the things about the church that disappointed you, that may have even brought you to the place of just checking out, it's very likely that Jesus himself would agree with you. Uh, don't anybody throw a purse at me up here. You know. <laughs> we don't expect our hearts to be. Here's where I'm going with that. And then I want to read a little bit with you about Jesus and the Pharisees. Some way or another, Matthew had a background. He didn't all of a sudden, the moment that Jesus said, follow me, he didn't all of a sudden begin to just instantaneously quote 130 Old Testament references. It very likely is that he grew up in the Jewish tradition. Like some folks can grow up in a Christian tradition, a church tradition, it, 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 it's not necessarily the true church reflective of the true heart of Jesus, but it's got his name all over it. It's got Bible verses everywhere and songs about him everywhere, but shot through. Where's the compassion? Where's the honesty? Where's the humility? It can be enough to drive honest people away. If what is advertised, that we're like Jesus, this is a Jesus place, this is a denomination, or this is a church that's supposed to be about Jesus, but the ones who were there, who were raised up in it, or who were around it, honestly, don't feel him, don't sense him. And so we can get the thing confused, Jesus and the church. I just want to say to you, no matter who the pastor is, no matter what the denomination is, no matter how big the property is or what the income is or how large the crowd, the church is not Jesus. Now that is not to say that the church has no value. Jesus died for the church shed his blood for the church, raised in order that the true church would be forgiven. But here's the true church, passionate followers of Jesus, ones who have individually heard, as Matthew would hear, follow me. There is a following of Jesus over the following of a pastor, over the following of a denomination. Over the following of a position in the church, there was the following of Jesus in the true church. And should it ever be that in a given setting, there is a conflict between following Jesus 
and also following the church, I've already made my choice. Jesus first, the church on down the line. Jesus first. Throughout the book of Matthew, it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus healed. Jesus delivered. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus convened with angels. Jesus saw Abraham or Moses and Elijah, excuse me, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. But hallelujah, Jesus was raised again. Matthew was documented as being there on the day of Pentecost, leading up to the Pentecost. Matthew saw it all the way through. If, he, if, you, had to, if you had to ask Matthew, Matthew, what hooked you? Matthew, what brought you back? Matthew, what restored an interest in the things of God. I believe with clear, piercing eyes, he would just mention one name, one word. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Matthew would speak more about money than any of the other gospel. But he's the one in Matthew 13 who says, it's like a man quoting Jesus. What, what stuck in his mind were the things that meant something to him, obviously, as well as many other things. But, but you, you can get some of the, how the, these evangelists, these gospel evangelists were wired by what they picked up unique to the other ones who wrote about the life of Jesus, things that hit them. It says, like a man finds a treasure in a field. He doesn't tell anybody about it, but he goes and sells everything he's got. And he goes and buys that field because that treasure, that treasure is worth more than any of the other stuff he had. He left everything, Luke would say, to follow Jesus. Like a jeweler who comes across a pearl jeweler has to sell everything that he or she has in order to buy that pearl of great price. What, what was it that set you free from stuff, from the security of stuff, Matthew? What was it that became more precious to you than the roof over your head and the chariot in your garage? What was it? You say, I wonder what? It was a who. <laughs> It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Matthew 23. Would you, would you turn over a few pages? Then Jesus, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, Matthew now being one of the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, Jesus said. Therefore, all they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi or teacher. But do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers, and do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. 
but the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And then Jesus launches into these seven woes to the Pharisees, warnings to the Pharisees. Skip down to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, hypocrites. Now, you know, I wonder if at this point, Matthew, under his breath, he is saying, preach it, preacher. Preach it. Preach it. Maybe it was because it was these things about the Pharisees, the religiously elite, the politically, religiously powerful, that caused him to give up on the organized religion around him. I see through the phoniness. I see through the lust for power. I see through the craving for stuff. I can find that in the world, so I think I'll just go join the world and be a captain in the world and be true about it instead of being plastic and phony and trying to do it in the name of God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus said, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, tiny seeds out of the garden, count out 10, the 10th one, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Here it comes again. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Unique to Matthew's gospel. You, you, you don't find this in Mark, Luke, or John. But Matthew noted it. And it was important to him. But the things that bugged him about the Pharisees were bugging Jesus about the Pharisees. But he found in Jesus someone powerfully and distinctively different than the religiously elite in charge of the system. But these are things Jesus would say you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Picture that. Think about the humor of Jesus. Now, he's, he's not speaking nicely to the hypocrites, Pharisees, but that's an interesting mental picture. Straining over a gnat, but you're swallowing a cotton-picking camel. You just don't see it. You're making a big deal out of things that are little deals and a huge deal out of things that aren't that important at all. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full, Jesus said, of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Can I say this and without confusing things? It may very well be that that which drove Matthew out was the very reason that Jesus came. 
He came to establish life in the middle of a dead religious system. It wasn't all wrong. The prophets spoke truth. The prophecies were accurate. But the system had stifled the truth and the power that God intended for his word to convey. The system. The system. The system. So when someone comes, not of the system, but coming to fulfill every line item of the law, cross every T, dot every I, the way it was originally intended, he comes with humility. He comes with compassion. He comes with honesty. And the ache for God inside Matthew, Levi, leapt. leapt. I, I, I tell Abby and Ryan, who make their journey in and around and into the country music scene of sorts, I say to them, I bet you, it's not good for a Baptist preacher daddy to say I bet you, but I did that. That on some Saturday night, and you're looking out into the faces of several hundred or a few thousand folks, and you're, you're playing country music, and some you wrote, some you didn't. If you just headed off into Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I said, I, I bet you you'd almost have some of those places just break into a church service made up of some in the crowd who have checked out on organized religion but have not given up on Jesus. I believe there are millions in America like that. And that, that what, what has happened is there's been this understandable and deserved disillusionment but folks who have been influenced in some settings, in some cases, by a plastic, phony, hypocritical craving for stuff and money and wealth, religious leadership, Christian leadership. And the innocence of children, just the innocence of folks wanting to go on with God, sense that, smell that, and just come to the conclusion, I don't need this. I don't need this. The world will do it better. So I'll just go join them. But even there, sitting behind his tax collector's, tax collector's desk, he wasn't backing his way into the synagogue classroom when Jesus confronted him. He wasn't anywhere near Isaiah. <laughs> he was in his newfound profession, doing what he had now become good at and known for. But Jesus knew something about him that nobody else around him may have known, that he may have not even known himself. you belong to heaven's heart. You belong to me. I'm just going to give you one, one instruction. And the instruction is an invitation. Follow me. He didn't say go get baptized. He didn't say repent of these 50 things. He didn't say get rid of these bad friends you've got. 
Because Jesus knows that as we draw near to him and our hearts get filled with the joy that he brings and the satisfaction that he brings, that stuff just falls off, that's unnecessary weight. He didn't come in beating the tax gatherer up like sometimes we can be prone to do when the system in us gets in way of the Savior. It'll never be the system that wins anybody. The system is what evidently drove Matthew away. Close with this. Jesus gave Peter a different name. From Simon, not sure what that meant, but he changed his name to what? Peter, which means what? Rock. Rock. In the power of the Spirit, by the strength of the living Christ inside him, he would stand solid and not mince his words and go to his death bearing the witness of Jesus. Do you know what Levi came to be known as in the early church? His name was Matthew. You know what that means? Gift of God. Gift of God. <laughs> he had been a thief of all men. He had been a stealer. He had been a taker. But now, following Jesus in the hand of the Lord, God says, you're a gift from me. You're a gift from me. You're a gift from me. Somebody out there needs to hear this. Somebody out there needs to hear this. The real Jesus, all he's saying to you today is follow me. Don't look at the church. Don't look at the preacher. Don't look at your past or your present. You follow me. If, if, if right where you sit, wherever you are around this world or in this room, to your heart you felt like that is the Lord saying something to you. Follow me. Then respond. Respond. Lord, the best I can. I will follow you. It then is up to him to give you the next step. Now you see, the good thing here, good news is, there are people all over this world who have heard and are hearing that same invitation. And the true church, the true body of Christ, the true one, instead of the one that's just a name only, there's no problem in the true one. With all affection and all allegiance and all loyalty and all priority going to Jesus. You won't get in trouble saying, I felt like the Lord led me to do this. I felt like the Lord led me to do this, and I felt like the Lord led me not to do it. We've got to be careful with, with, even in this place of the true church where it starts out with a loyalty to Jesus, that somehow we, we get to thinking that our programs and, and our, our plans and our vision for what the church ought to be then has to become the, the dictated policy for folks who are part of the church. Better watch that, preachers, looking at myself. They're not our servants. They're his servants. Loyalty to Jesus is to take precedence over every other loyalty, humanly speaking. And there's freedom in that. There's joy in that. 
And it's a test of whether or not the church is the true church or whether the church needs a big giant dose of revival. That's what revival is. It reestablishes the preeminence of Jesus as the head of the church. Follow me. Follow me, he said. Get all the other faces and all the other sounds off of who the real Jesus is. And he's saying to you, saying to us today, follow me. Well, that's it. I just believe somehow, some way, there are ones who, if you hear that and you respond, the Lord will bring you out. The Lord will bring you forth. And the things that may be left behind are things that won't necessarily be missed <laughs> if he requires that you leave them at all. Follow me. Lord, will you please take this wherever this needs to go? Jesus friend of sinners, Jesus, the friend of sinners, saying to my heart, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Please grant it, Lord, by your spirit, in Jesus' name.